Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I'm director of the South Asia Center, and I dare say a cricket enthusiast. So I'm doing this job for two reasons of, of moderating this evening's uh, discussion. We're going to give it another few minutes. That's fine. Uh, you're not as late as our speaker. So, uh, 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 so we are waiting for Peter Obon to show up, um, and we might give it a few more minutes if that's allowed. We have Field Marshal John Chappell in the audience, so I'm particularly nervous about timings and being late. Uh, and I apologize, this is academia for you, I'm sorry. Uh, but as you can see, we are all here and ready to start. But while we wait, can I just ask, I'm looking at the demo dem demography in this room, and it is a very interesting demography. I am extremely disappointed by my South Asian colleagues who aren't here. Uh, can I ask, is there any nationality other than British or South Asian in this room? <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome. Because this is clearly a discussion that is of relevance to these two parts of the world. Um, how many of you have actually watched a test match? Oh, fantastic. This is, I mean, I hope this is, uh, how many of you have watched a limited overs match, a 50 overs match? Okay, that is reassuringly thinner than the test match crowd. And how many of you have watched a T20 match? And how many of you have actually watched an IPL match? Okay, so this is a very interesting bit of spot ethnography we can do here, that uh, the fact that the audiences for test matches and IPL is completely different is entirely not true, because most of the hands that went up, the first, I think everybody's watched everything in this room, so like me, I think you. Have you watched them live is what I was asking. How many of you have watched an IPL live? Yes. Oh, not live on television. That I've done too. Yeah, no, no. How many of you watch? How many have been test matches? So test. Okay, let's do this live. Test match live. Everybody, fantastic. Uh, limited overs live, and T uh, Twenty live, and IPL live. Sorry, I know it's not worth recording. I, uh, this is just we're just passing the time while we wait for Peter. But in in a minute. Um, so IPL Live is not that many, so that is why we still have our hearing intact, because if you go to an IPL match live, I'm told, the level, even on television, the level of noise that is maintained, both by the crowds and the musicians and the dancers and everybody else, is quite extraordinary. Uh, but that's as modern as cricket, and of course all of us in this room know about the IPL auction that happened. Yes? And you uh, know about the highest... Uh, Bid for the oh, yes, yes. We have a very well-informed member of the audience here. Yes, no, you clearly are. Ben Stokes uh, won that, and of course, um, retired hurt Test cricketers are getting a new lease of life in the IPL matches because if you can't bowl more than five overs, you can at least bowl in an IPL match, which is fantastic. So who knew that IPL might be the savior of Test of cricketers' careers? So. Anyway, I think what we might do, Prashant, is start, and then uh, when Peter comes in, I'll, you know, we'll shift and, and uh, let him. So let me introduce both of them so we don't interrupt the conversation uh, later. Um, Dr. Prashant Kadambi, on my right, is Associate Professor in Colonial Urban History at the University of Leicester. 
His default thesis at Oxford uh, explored the nature of colonial governance and public culture in colonial Bombay during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He's currently researching, and that's what we'll be talking about today, the social history of Indian cricket, and is completing a book on the history of the first Indian cricket tour of Great Britain in 1911, just as the capital was moving, the imperial capital was moving from Calcutta to Delhi, uh, the first Indian cricket tour happened. And of course, this is, for the young members of the audience, this is British India, so it is all of uh, South Asia. Peter will be here in two minutes, I'm told. We'll be hearing more about this intriguing story, which casts interesting light on the interplay between sport, nation, and empire tonight. And I think the problem, this challenge is going to be to maintain equal amounts of attention on the game itself, on cricket, but also uh, the history and the politics of it, which I think all three of us share that uh, interest equally in, in all those three areas. So we're going to try and keep all those three balls in the air. Peter Obun, who will be here in a, in a minute or so, is a political commentator and associate ed editor in, of The Spectator. He has authored two books on the history of cricket in Pakistan. The first, Wounded Tiger, is a major study of sport and nationhood, which traces the evolution of the national team since independence in 1947, as well as documenting the challenges it has faced in recent years. The second, co-authored with Richard Heller and entitled White on Green, is a collection of portraits of big names and unsung heroes of Pakistan cricket. It offers a unique window of both, both of the country's relationships with the game and the wider social and political environment. So the way we'll, we'll uh, run this session is um, I'm going to let both uh, Prashant and Peter make opening remarks for about 10 minutes or so. Yeah. And they'll lay out their sort of main, uh, what they want to get in uh, definitely there, the main meat of their argument. I'll come back with a few questions, generate a bit of a discussion uh, here, and then, of course, we'll take lots of questions. Uh, so uh, over to you, Prashant. Thanks very much, Mukulika, and uh, thank you very much for this invitation, and thank you all for coming. Um, this panel, really, the idea for this started, uh, I think, about 18 months ago when Mukulika and I were casually chatting about what I was doing these days in my research, and I happened to mention that I was doing a book uh, on the first Indian cricket tour to Britain, uh, which I've been researching for a few years, and uh, she got very excited about this, uh, and uh, we started you know, talking about sort of the fact that there weren't really that many uh, sort of the historical research on cricket uh, was sort of uh, uh, fairly uh, minimal. Uh, there very few books that have really sort of sought to explore it and contextualize the historical emergence and consolidation of cricket in the subcontinent. Um, and that's how, uh, and, and as it happened, as I was telling her about my research, I was also reading the very exciting work that was coming out on South Asian cricket uh, by my friend Peter Obon, who will be joining us at the moment, but also other scholars. And a lot of this interest obviously has to do with the place that uh, South Asian cricket uh, now occupies, cricket occupies in South Asia, and the interest that's being generated worldwide by this extraordinary uh, paradox of a bucolic, uh, pre-industrial, uh, archaic English game uh, developed in uh, the southeast of England, becoming a subcontinental passion. And, um, and I think what I want to start off with uh, is essentially the paradox and conundrum that this confronts us with, 
uh, how did this happen? Uh, you know, how did this English game, uh, most English of English games, become uh, this popular in the subcontinent? How does one account for it? There is, of course, as uh, many of you are probably aware, one very uh, famous answer to this question, which was by the irrepressible Ashish Nandi, uh, who, who famously said, who famously said that cricket was an Indian game invented by the English. And he argued that essentially the structure of cricket, its characteristics as a sport, uh, found deep resonance in Indian society. And that was largely because cricket was this slow agrarian game and India was an agrarian civilization. Uh, cricket was a sport in which contact was minimized. It was a game also with its own sorts of hierarchies and arcane rituals. And this seemed uh, to Nandi to chime very well with the essential cultural characteristics of Indian society. Um, that explanation, of course, has been discredited by history because anyone who goes to India will tell you, or anyone who follows Indian cricket or subcontinental cricket will tell you that the biggest audiences now are not to be found at test matches, which are uh, starkly empty uh, for most days of the five playing days. The biggest following for cricket now is the frenetic 20-over T20 format uh, and most notably on display in the IPL. But I think there's a more fundamental problem with the Nandi uh, sort of framework for trying to account for cricket, and which is that it rehearses many essential, uh, essentializing elements of uh, it, its arguments tend to essentialize Indian culture and to dehistoricize the way in which the sport is evolved. And uh, one of my aims is really uh, today to put forward to you the four sets of uh, propositions regarding uh, how cricket uh, has evolved in India. And my argument, the central argument which ties together all of this, is that to understand cricket and its growth in India and its consolidation in, uh, in South Asia, rather, one has to relate it to broader processes of political modernity in South Asia. That cricket uh, must be seen not in terms of some exceptionalist argument, must be seen in relation to the processes that have uh, shaped South Asia's political modernity. And as I said, there are four elements that I think are crucial, and I present these to you as propositions to be debated, not conclusive. Uh, sort of, uh, my, um, I, what I'm saying is not conclusive. I'm open to sort of discussion and debate around this. Uh, so the first of the propositions that I want to make about cricket is that from its emergence uh, in mid-19th century Bombay, uh, cricket introduces a very interesting proposition in a deeply divided and hierarchical colonial society, which is that it holds out the theoretical possibility of parity and equality on the, on the sporting field. I'll bracket off the question of whether that theoretical possibility is actually achieved in practice. Uh, but the fact that Victorian ideology, sporting ideology, held that on the sporting field, everyone had to be equal. This was a very radical idea in a very hierarchical and racially divided society. And I want to suggest that there are three registers in which one can see the radicalness of this idea disturbing and enchanting Indian South Asian society. And those are race, religious community, and caste. The second proposition I want to make is that to understand cricket and its Entrenchment in Indian society, one also has to link it to the formation of mass publics and the role of the media in the formation of a mass public culture. 
The third proposition is that cricket also has to be understood in relation to nationalism, but not a nationalism, not a relationship that naturalizes that link, but highlights its contingent uh, formation. And that is what my book is doing in a sense. It's arguing against the idea that there was something inherently natural and national about cricket. The way it comes about is, is through the politics, through politics and through institutional forms of patronage. Uh, the fourth proposition is that cricket also needs to be related to processes of middle-class formation. Now, all of this, all these propositions are, as I said, uh, invitations to further research. But there has been work that allows us to flesh some of these out. And let me go back to the first of the propositions that I mentioned, and that is about the principle of parity and equality that cricket introduces in a colonized society. This idea, this Victorian idea of equality on the cricket field plays itself out, as I said, in three registers. One is that of race. And let me give you an example. In the 1850s, when cricket took off, it took, takes off first in Bombay, and the first community to take to it are the Parsis. The Parsis, over the next 20, 30 years, get better at the game, and by the 1880s, they're challenging the Europeans in Bombay, who are forced to play them. What's very interesting is the Parsis start winning against the Europeans. In 1890 and 1892, when European teams come visiting India, the Parsis in Bombay defeat them. And the argument, and of course, obviously, the Parsis are elated about the victories that they've achieved. And if one reads the reports of the matches and the discussion and debate <coughs> that breaks out in the Parsi press, one cannot be failed to be struck by the fact that they're constantly drawing parallels. They're trying to take the lessons of cricket and apply it to the world outside the cricket field, which is that if we can beat you on the sporting field and we prove that we're your equal in this most British of games, why can't that principle, why can't you start treating us as equals elsewhere? There's also a very famous case that Ram Guha has discussed in his book about the conflict between the Parsis, and indeed Indian cricketers in Bombay, and European military officers over the use of the Bombay Esplanade, the big Maidan, in which the Bombay cricketers used to practice. This field was taken over by European polo players, and there was a conflict between the polo players and the Indian cricketers. And Ram notes the irony of this. Polo, an Indian game taken by the British. Cricket, an English game taken by the Indians. Right? And this conflict goes to the heart. Uh, the historian of this conflict, a man named Saurabhji Shapurji, who wrote, a, uh, who wrote a pamphlet about this called Polo versus Cricket, draws explicitly political lessons from what's going on about the way in which they're prevented from using this space theoretically open to all. And he, and he points out that this conflict encapsulates the heart of the colonial project, which is to colonize and exclude. And the Parsi cricketers petition the government and they make very moral arguments about how the principle of equality and parity means the fact that these are cricketers, that English sport, they should be allowed the privileges that English cricketers would have had. A second register, as I said, was that of religious community. When the Hindus, cricket in Bombay was deeply communalized and it was divided into, you know, you had Hindu cricket and you had Muslim cricket and Parsi cricket. When the Parsis started getting recognition from the British, you had 
the Parsis and the uh, British, uh, the Europeans in Bombay used to play a match called the Presidency Match, which was, you know, it was the big cricket match in Bombay in the late 1890s. The Hindus, as they started getting better at the game, also wanted the principle of parity to be applied on the cricket field. They too wanted recognition in terms of uh, the Europeans granting them a cricket, uh, uh, you know, giving them the privilege of playing them on the cricket field. And when the Muslims got better, they too did the same. And finally, caste. The best bowler in Bombay in, 19, in the 1900s was an untouchable, who also happens to, the, to be the hero of the book that I'm writing because he happens to be very successful in England. He's the star player in this team. He was a man called Palwankar Balu. And he and his brothers played for many years for the Hindu Gymkhana. And in their case, even though they were untouchables, there was a big debate within the Hindu community about allowing them to play. And the arguments again advanced were very much arguments about on the sporting field, we have to set aside our differences and the principle of parity and equality must obtain. Now, these are three quick illustrations, as I said, of how this principle of parity and equality on the sporting field, which, as I said, is a theoretical possibility. It's held out as a theoretical possibility, nonetheless has very radical implications. Of course, in practice, you do not get the possibilities offered. It just remains a possibility because the Europeans, for example, vis-a-vis -vis the Parsis, tend to get more and more racist and more and more antagonistic in their attitude towards the Parsis as they start losing uh, to them on the cricket field. Similarly, the Hindus and the Parsis, uh, you find growing conflict between them over the course of the 1900s, and then growing conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims on the cricket field. And this, of course, sets the terms for the famous uh, quadrangular tournament, which is played between the Hindus, the Muslims, the Parsis, uh, and the Europeans. And then in the 1930s, you have a team called the Rest, which had Buddhists and Jews and so on. And the principle very much was that of communal you know, it, it, it inflamed communal passions because this was also happening at a time when ideas of community identity and its relationship with the nation were being debated. Moving on very quickly, so, so my point is that you have this principle that's introduced which has this radical potential, but the theoretical possibility and its practical uh, manifestation, there is always this gap. But it still, nonetheless, as a principle, has this radical uh, implication, as I said. The second point I want to make is that if you want to understand how cricket became a popular game in subcontinent, you have to look at the history of the formation of mass public culture. You have to look at the way in which the constructions of mass uh, forms of uh, popular culture take shape in colonial uh, and post-colonial India. And here, if you have to understand the consolidation of cricket, you have to really look at first the role of newspapers. One of the things I found in my research is how quickly and swiftly, cricket was, uh, for the want of a better term, vernacularized uh, in the Indian press. I've been looking at Gujarati newspapers where there are intense discussions about the laws of cricket, about the interpretation of rules, arguments about what is cricket, what isn't cricket, uh, treatises on how to play the game. So cricket becomes, in the popular press, uh, a, a very, it, it, it gets intense coverage from the very outset, and far more than any other Indian sport. And then in the 1930s, you have the emergence of radio. Radio brings its own dynamics to, in terms of creating these new uh, subcontinent-wide heroes from the 1930s onwards. And then fast-forwarding to the 1970s, you have television, which 
essentially post-1983 responsible for the popularity of one-day cricket, taking it to small towns. And that in turn has fueled the growth of the small-town cricket culture that we see today. The third proposition, as I said, is to relate cricket to the politics of nationalism. Now, my first point here is that cricket, the natural link between cricket and nationalism should not be assumed. In fact, there was nothing, if you looked at the history of the communal uh, cricket tournaments, if you looked at the way in which the idea of India emerges from the cricket field, there was nothing natural about it. One of the things I found in my book on the 1911 cricket tour, which was the first time a team calling itself the Indian cricket team arrived on British shores, was that it was a project that took 15 years. And there were four failed ventures before they managed to get a team to come and play in Britain as the Indian cricket team. And of course, the quadrangular and then the pentangular in the 30s and 40s intensified the divides between the communities. So sport, rather than bringing people together, was actually dividing them. It is only after 1947 that cricket acquires this link with the nation and becomes an object, symbol of national unity. But even there, the history is a very patchy one. If you look at the records and reports of the 1960 Indo-Pak tours, the tone is very different from the sort of hyper-nationalism that you get in the 1990s. So my argument is that we need to contextualize it and to see these histories, the link between cricket and nationalism as a contingent, historically constituted one, ever-changing. And the final point is cricket and the middle classes. What's astonishing about cricket is that this is a sport that is a colonial one, there are sports that are more popular than cricket in colonial India in the late 19th century. Wrestling, for example. One of the things that I found during the course of my research on this book was that the summer of 1911 when the Indian cricket team was here and they were adopting this very liberal discourse of we've come to learn from you. It was very politics of liberal, moderate nationalism. We'll learn from you. Uh, you know, this is an educational tour. One of the uh, joys of uh, doing this book was to find that that same summer there were 20 hefty Punjabi pahalwans uh, who were uh, in London, and their attitude was very different. They, they had come to challenge the Europeans, and they sent out challenges saying they would thrash anyone who <laughs> agreed to take them on, and they proceeded to do so to the point where Health and Strength, a popular journal of the time, was beseeching European wrestlers to stop being so shy and forget uh, you know, trying to uh, wrestle on the basis of match-fixing and, 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 and come and take on these Indian wrestlers. So you had wrestling, but wrestling never attracted, I mean, the middle class interest in wrestling only starts in the early uh, 20th century, and it's very much in the context of the emergence of the Swadeshi movement, which happens in Bengal and so on. But cricket is the one sport that the middle classes take to, and even today, if you look at cricket, it is essentially a middle class sport in the people who play it and the people who watch it, to the extent that when there is a subaltern feel-good story, it makes the news. When somebody whose parents uh, make a living uh, by hawking or, or some uh, other sort of uh, activity, you know, uh, which does not uh, get them very much, suddenly find that their child, has, uh, their son has been offered a huge contract in the IPL. That makes the news. If you look at the, uh, Richard Cashman's fine study of uh, Indian cricket in the 1970s, he did an analysis of cricketers uh, who, who played for India from the 1930s onwards, largely from middle-class backgrounds. So I think if you have to understand 
the way in which cricket has evolved and consolidated itself, you have to look at the formation of middle class culture and its changing forms. Because behind this hyper-nationalism of the late 90s and the early 2000s is also the changing nature of middle class participation and relationship with the sport. I think I'll end there. And Thank you. Peter. I think for the sake of parity, we should let Peter have at least 15 minutes. But, no, I, yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I did. Um, it's, great, it's great to... Uh, Prashant was such a help with when I wrote my book on uh, Pakistan cricket. And I, what I'll try and do in, my, in a little time is use, the, uh, use Pakistan cricket as a way of understanding nationalism and the evolution of uh, Indian... Um, what we now call Indian cricket. Uh, I mean, it, remembering that they were, it, was the, it was all India up until... British India up until 1947. I have a different interpretation in many ways to Prashant. Um, and, you, and I looked at this... The, uh, I, I looked at the beginnings of, of Indian uh, cricket, and I, I'm going to, my thesis is really that Indian cricket... Is, is really a method of, under the British of, of doing business with the British, of copying the British, of even assenting in colonial rule. Um, and I'm going to use examples to show that. Whereas Pakistan cricket is a, a, the nationalist mode from a very early stage. Um, and uh, so... He, if you look at the very beginnings of cricket in, in India, it starts... The British bring it through trade to, what using the old terms, Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, and uh, British trading colonies set up. Uh, and the first thing that happens is they're helped by the Parsis, who, the, who, who were much more disposed <coughs> and accommodating. Uh, then the Hindus... And um, the Muslims stand back from all of this. Um, and you, you get the event which A.H. Khadar, the first test match captain of Pakistan, liked to call the first war of independence, the Indian mutiny in uh, British terminology. Um, and you, then you get a... a uh, disjuncture, you get an argument within Muslims in the subcontinents about how to deal with the catastrophe of 1857. And, and as we know, we have the Deobandi school, the, the, the retreat away from the modern, the Western world. And another analysis expressed through the Aligarh at, at university in North India, of engagement. Um, Aligarh is very important because it, because it becomes the model for... It becomes the... or it, it really is the beginning of the Muslim League. Well, the great figures from the early Muslim League come from Aligarh. And universities or colleges are set up on the Aligarh model through North India in... in uh, in Peshawar, in Lahore, and uh, I I elsewhere. And that's the first... Try and hang, hang, hang that. That's the, the, and cricket is, is a key part of the Aligarh curriculum, taught by a man, first of all, a man called Beck, 
who was a Cambridge apostle, uh, who, with, uh, who came and taught people how to play cricket. <coughs> and they, um, as well as, and he saw it as a form of mus- muscular Islam. He liked muscular Islam. Sort of came, David Cameron would almost like that, I think. Musc- likes it. Now, um, you, um, and so, and that Aligarh movement becomes part of the movement towards Pakistan, uh, in Muslim nationalism. You, uh, it becomes, it seeds the Pakistan movement. There are two. I'm going to sort of going to veer off now in a slightly different direction. If you look at again, if you look at the early cricket on the Indian subcontinent. It expresses itself communally through religion or race. You can see this most clearly through the notorious pentangular, as it ended up, tournament, played at Bomb. We started off as a, as a triangular and then it became a quadrangular in Bombay, which was, Frashant was referring to. This is classic British, well, I, and I think a division rule. So it starts off with our friends, the Parsis, who accommodated them most easily and readily to the empire. Then the Hindus. And then, churlishly and very late, the Muslims. Um, it then becomes this incredibly exciting, dramatic games in Bombay, which the whole of Bombay stops as Ram Guha's ex- beautifully portrayed, you know, for a week. Um, and the, these are communal matches, which is why Gandhi hated them. He tried, the Congress party tried to close them down from time to time without much success, though they occasionally... So Gandhi hated cricket. It's very important. Whereas uh, Jinnah was very, I mean, he, he wasn't a sportsman really, but he, he was very much, cricket was with the Muslim League. It was, Congress disliked cricket, particularly the communal nature of it, because it was everything that Gandhi hated. Uh, there are, is, however, from a quite an early point, a parallel structure, the Ranji Trophy, which is interesting. It starts in, what, 1930s? 36. 36. Uh, and as, as a historian of Pakistan cricket, I was fascinated by the northern India team, which is really most of what is now Pakistan, although there was also, I think there was a... Because if you look at it, you can see the, it's non-sectarian, it's non-religious. It even, it even contains a number of British who didn't deserve to play for it. I looked at their results. Um, but they had some, some of the formidable players of early Pakistan cricket play for the Northern Indian team. So they have, there is actually a, 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 division, a, a modern structure as well as a sectarian structure. And, of course, India emerges as a, as a cricket team, as an international, is, is admitted on the world stage in, uh, 19, in 19... When are they? 1930s, early 30s? Again, 32. 32. Now... My, I'm going to veer off again. My, my observation about early Indian cricket is incredible. It's rather rude. If you're an Indian, you're not going to like this bit. 
I stopped listening, actually. Um, it's, it's run by these Maharajas, and they adopt cricket as a way of sucking up to the Brits. Um, socialite, you get preferential social access to the Viceroy. Hence, these appalling figures who managed the Pakistan teams, which, sorry, the Indian teams, which tore England in the 1930s. 1936, Maharaj Anagram. he's an absolute shocker. <laughs> and he, 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 he has no cricketing ability at all. Uh, but worst of all, he, 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 he discourages, he, he takes a caste attitude towards his early players. Above all, Armanath, the genius, the young, uh, I don't know, the young Botham or whatever of the, the capital dev of his age, I don't know, he's marvellous, Armanath. But he gets sent home by the poorly. It was the wrong person goes home, obviously. But it's uh, and and so it's a form of collaborate. The cricket, I'm going to, uh, I argue, is a form of collaboration. Now we'll go back to the, my beginning about Pakistan cricket. I'm the historian of Pakistan cricket. You should expect it to be rather anti-Indian. By the way, the Indian historians of Indian cricket are rather anti-Pakistan. So there you are, okay. including Ram Guha. Who I, who I um, had a look at his historiography, and it was, didn't, it, it was a little bit... Um, um, anyway, there we are. <laughs> and um, the, but what you now get is the... Uh, with, 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 with Pakistan cricket, it emerges as a radical movement. It's part of the Muslim League, and you can see this. The great early figures, my hero, Fazal Mahmood whose father had vanished into the recesses of Afghanistan in, uh, in the First World War in a, in a hopeless bid to uh, bring down the British Empire. But admirable, I think. Uh, he wanted a caliphate, uh, and he connected with the Lenin and things like that. He, he was very, but he, 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 where he was, and then he, he was... Fazal, his son, his famous son, was born while... Uh, while... Uh, the great, um, his father, his magnificent father, was in jail, in a British jail. And he, he, he came back from his excursion to Afghanistan to edit a magazine called Revolution. Um, uh, but that is the, uh, and Fazal was part of the early bodyguards. When Jinnah went to Lahore, he would be a bodyguard to Jinnah. Uh, and so the Pakistan team, Pakistan cricket rather, was a form of nationalism, I think, because it was a form of assertion. And when Qadar becomes captain of the test team, and I've lost, I left, because we haven't got a great deal of time, he embodies national, um, national assertiveness, uh, Pakistan identity, in a way which the appalling busy anagram absolutely didn't. You know, he, he, he embodied um, supplication to the... Um, to the Brits. Um, uh, where I take issue with um, Guha, he likes to present, in his brilliant book, Qadar as some form of ideologist. And I think he sort of means, a, I think he means a Muslim ideologist. He's a little bit ambiguous, which is nothing of the sort. He's a sort of heavy drinking, Savile Row suit wearing, uh, Oxford educated, um, but, but he, 
he, he, uh, he, he did believe in the idea of Pakistan, whereas early cricket in India did not believe. In fact, it was opposed to the idea of India. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you both. Um, in fact, your uh, mention of uh, the journal uh, reminds me that, of course, we are part of the LSE Literary Festival, whose uh, theme is revolutions, and we are marking many revolutions, and we thought this might be an interesting discussion to talk about the revolutionary potential of, of cricket in the way it worked out in the 20th century. And I think both of you have, have spoken to that. Before I uh, open up wider issues that you've both implied, and I know you have a lot more to say, can I just ask Fazal Mahmood, is he a Pashtun? I don't think so. I'd say he was... Uh, he, he's born in Lahore, I'd say. He oh, was so a, he's a Punjabi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, because it is interesting that it gets... There is such a direct link to the Khilafat movement and to mm. various kinds of political movements where there's direct genealogy with the cricket team. Mm. Is a similar story happening... I mean, do the Hindus remain servile and supplicant the entire time, or is... Uh, does the... Uh, it goes on for quite... By the way, actually, the, the other interesting thing is that two, in Lahore there are two great universities. There's Islamia College and there's Government College, which is, what it, which is rather what it sounds like. It was, Islamia was much the more heretical uh, college. Uh, and uh, it is fascinating to... And, and Jinnah always went, um, in, in, during the period of colonial rule, to Islamia College. He never went to Government College at all. And it's Islamia College which generated the first generation of test match cricketers. About six of them, six of the early team went, went to Islamia. Where uh, Fazal, and, and that's quite, I see that as significant because I think it's part of the... But going on with India, I, according to Kada, now I'm only relying now on, on Kada who didn't like India at all. But it, it, according to his book, and Kada had a post after he played, stopped playing cricket he became a great administrator of uh, Pakistan cricket. And he became, he became, he, he turned cricket into the Bhutto, his old friend from Bombay in the 1940s. Bhutto asked him to run cricket for Pakistan. And he became, his policy was part of Bhutto's non aligned policy. And he, it's very significant that Kadal was never. The, the, the MCC, who loved to make sure that the, 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 the Leary Constantine got a peerage, you know, the, uh, I'm sure you can find lots of early Indian cricketers who get awards and gongs. Kardar got given nothing, not even an honorary membership of the MCC. And that's just because he, he ran the anti-apartheid camp. He, he, he was the earliest campaigner to get rid of, um, get rid of uh, South Africa from, from world cricket. And he, he um, was, and he, he, in his autobiography, he suggests that India would not support him. I don't know whether that's true or not because I didn't check. Um, but he certainly cast aspersions of Indian cricket administration as being, as being basically happy at that stage of its career to be docile and take orders from these flannel fools in in Lords. Prashant, do you want to come back with a report to this uh, tainted picture? Of... Um, no, not really. I mean, I think... Uh, or alternative facts? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, uh, I, I mean, you brought point about uh, the tensions between Kardar and the Indian cricket establishment pre-partition. I mean, that 
that's there. But I think the story is more ambiguous, actually. Um, I think, I mean, even going back to the point about princes you were, you, you were saying, I mean, it's true that a lot of them uh, were pretty hopeless at the game, but there were many who actually took the trouble to practice. I mean, Ranji, for yeah, example, think, yeah. uh, you know, even though he wasn't, you know, he, he acquired his throne through a... He you know, read his book on cricket. Yes. The imperial game. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, their attitude, uh, I mean, uh, the Maharaj of Patiala was a very fine cricketer himself. So I don't think, you know, it was the case that mm. all of them, uh, because they were all put through training, you know, I mean, it was some of them, like Vijayanagram, I think, was a particularly uh, bad uh, cricketer, <laughs> and, I, you know, his was a clear case of nepotism and so on. But there were others who were, I think, less so. But I'm not sure. I mean, I think the story, it depends on what period, I mean, the, the early 1950s is, I think, a very specific kind of period. But to depend on what period we are talking about, I think the Indo-Pak relationship also undergoes ups and downs. And, you know, uh, if you think of 96, the 96 World Cup, when the boards all come together and and bid for the World Cup, I think that's a story of Mm. how they work across borders. but there have also been times when they've worked. I mean, and increasingly, as India has commercialized, its cricket economy is commercialized into the IPL and so on. There's great resentment because I think, you know, uh, Pakistan has now set up its own uh, cricketing league and so on. And, that, you know, and the fact that Pakistani cricketers weren't allowed to play in recent years in the IPL. So The Indian cricket, the Indian-Pakistan cricket relationship is absolutely fascinating. Pakistan plays its first test match ever in Delhi and then wins it and beats and loses, and then goes to Lucknow, where else, and beats, huge moment, beats India. And, uh, and they merrily play each other for about eight years. When we, <laughs> then we have a 1960 to 78, they don't play each other at all. Yeah. Uh, interrupted, war stops play. Yes. And, um, and then you get, a, and then in 1978, uh, you get this uh, marvellous resurrection of the, game and there's fantastic cricket rivalry re-engages um, and that comes abruptly to an end in yeah. about 1990. I think what's interesting yeah. about that is I think the biggest casualty was uh, you know people like to say oh cricket is the loser but actually it was the games because they were so terrified in the 50s and 60s of losing to each other that they played these dreadful draws where you know, each team would score 500 prepared flat wickets. And, you know, yeah, this is, there was, terrible for the There were 13 yeah. consecutive draws. draws. Because they were so scared of yeah. losing to each other. And there were a series of nil So the cricket was absolutely series. dreadful, you know. And the, Fixed by nationalism. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> and each team would score 500 and then bat, try to bat the other team out of the game, you know. Okay, this India-Pakistan story obviously has, has legs and we can carry on. Through the, can I just take you back, and we may pick this up again with the audience questions, is in that first tour in 1911, what, given there were divided teams and you know, already anticipating the divided electorates of 1935 and you know, this divide-and-rule policy of the imperial government, what was the dynamic of team members across religions in that first Indian team that came to Britain? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think the, uh, the background to this is this tour uh, was not, uh, you know, it was not something that was suddenly thought up. I mean, one of the things that uh, doing the research showed was that, you know, there's a popular perception that people call this tour by all kinds of names and, uh, you know, they'll say it's the Patiala private tour and so on. It wasn't. I mean, Patiala put some money into it, the project, but he wasn't the prime mover. 
it was not an idiosyncratic project as it might seem. Because to give you the background, this is a team led by a 19-year-old prince. It had six Hindus. It had four Muslims. Uh, sorry, it had six Parsis, four Muslims, five Hindus. The star players were two untouchable cricketers. So if any of you watched Lagan, it's a bit like a historical Lagan, really. The thing was, it suggests that it's a very idiosyncratic sort of uh, uh, enterprise. But what I discovered was that this was a project which was 15 years in the making. And there were four failed attempts to put together a team, an Indian cricket team. And one of the problems was that because the structure of cricket in colonial India was organized along communal lines... Um, you know, you had Hindus uh, teams and Muslim teams and Parsi teams. Getting a team together became a huge problem. And, the, and what uh, each time when the project fell through, it fell through in 1899, it fell through in 1903, it fell through in 1906, it fell through in 1908. The reason it fell through was the question of what is a representative Indian team? The Parsis said, we are the best players, so we should have eight Parsis and two Hindus and one Muslim. You know? and, and the Hindus obviously uh, recoiled at this and said, you know, we've started coming on in the game and uh, we could, you know, we've got lots of our fine players. So each, of the time, each time it failed, the question of representation was at its heart. Mm -hmm. And it's no surprise that the, the meeting for the, you know, the run-up to this 1911 tour really starts in 1909, just on the year of the Morley Minto reforms and the separate electorates. So, and, and the question of Muslim representation is, 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 is coming in, in the air. And it's very interesting that Muslims have three, uh, you know, the three Aligarh players who are in this team. And that was largely because Aligarh was, uh, as uh, Peter was saying, had emerged as the center of uh, Muslim cricket. But who, you know, who represent, you know, the, the representative nature of the side was the key sticking point yeah. each time. And in terms of their interactions, Many of these players had played each against each other individually. So one suspects that they got. I mean, the photographs I've seen suggest a fair degree of uh, sort of you know that they, 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 they're getting on. But the one person who reported extensively on the tour, an English journalist called uh, Edward Sewell, who, who basically wrote a lot of reports and he knew all these players and uh, and, and followed the tour closely. He reported that the Parsis and the Hindus and the Muslims weren't getting on and that the uh, Parsis were dropping catches of the Hindu bowlers. Uh, and, 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 and there was a very funny story about one of the Muslim cricketers was one-eyed and apparently yes. he had forgotten to mention this to his captain. And, 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 and this was not discovered for some reason. It's quite extraordinary how you could get away with something like that. But, but he did. And when the, uh, you know, apparently these catches used to go past him and he wouldn't get... Get the catches. And, and, and this led to great resentment until the chap said, I have only one eye. So, you know, I have this problem on the field. So, so you have stuff like that. But, uh, and then, of course, there's also the dynamic. It's very interesting. We don't... Food. Food. Socialization. Well, the food. The Indians were sick a lot of the time because they couldn't stand English food. And so, <laughs> so, so then I did a listing of all the Indian restaurants in London. There are two new ones that had opened in 1911. So I'm assuming... You know, they were staying in the Imperial Hotel in Russell Square. So, uh, which is where the first South African team also stayed uh, when they came in 1907. So, uh, so they probably hung around, you know, and, and went to the uh, Indian restaurants that, that, that they were around the place. But what's very interesting for me is Balu the bowler, uh, and the wicketkeeper was a Tamil Brahmin called Seshachari, who's one of the best uh, uh, sort of wicketkeepers of his generation. He had been to the same school as uh, P.G. Budhouse, uh, Dalich, and uh, he was, you know, regarded as one of the finest wicketkeepers of the time. He and Balu got on really well. One Brahmin, one untouchable. Yeah, so right. because they were a very deadly... They used to play for the Hindus together, you know. 
Because all these guys, this is a very aging team, you know, the number of times that the project had not come off. These people, the project, when it started, they were all in their teens. By the time it, it, they finally came, they were all old men in their mid-30s, you know, sort of, uh, sort of struggling on the field, as it were. Yeah. Okay. I, I can see that there are going to be lots of questions. So I think we might stop this and start taking and I'm sure you'll get a chance. But I love the idea of London Belly. So this is now a new... You've, uh, I think Delhi has had a very bad press for a very long time. So thank you for providing. So I'll, let's take some questions from the audience. Otherwise, I'll come back. And I'll take two questions at a time. So let's do these two together here. Yes, Thank you. Yeah, please wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, my question is to Dr. Prashant. Uh, in the present uh, time, sir, there is almost no uh, low-caste Indian player. Is there any reason for that? Because the last low-caste player was Sachin Tendulkar's best friend, Vinod Kamli. Yeah. Let's take the other one as well. Uh, how widespread now is uh, match-fixing in Indian and Pakistan cricket? And with the huge sums now being uh, made in the uh, IPL, uh, are the authorities in India, I mean, are, are they really capable of taking sufficient action uh, uh, to, uh, uh, against this? Okay. Um, I, the first question about... Uh, Dalit cricketers in India. I think it's one of the great uh, sort of conundrums because this first team has two Dalit players and then you don't get one until the 1970s. And even, I mean, that was Eknath Solkar, but even about Solkar in terms of his caste identity, I'm not sure that whether he was a Dalit, but Kambli was, I think, the first Vinod Kambli in the 1990s. It is very interesting. And as I said, the roots of the explanation must lie in trying to understand the institutional structure of cricket uh, the way, uh, you know, it, the game is uh, is played. I think in Bombay, uh, sort of, you know, there are more opportunities for some of, you know, because the school cricket is sort of deeply embedded and so on. But even there, there's no denying that there's great exclusions around, you know, uh, around sport and cricket in particular. Uh, and it's, I think, one of the questions that uh, demands explanation. I think th there's some kind of explanations which, you know, one, one could sort of uh, debate them. One is that, you know, cricket in India is a Brahmin conspiracy that mostly, you know, all the top cricketers are usually, you know, from the upper castes, and uh, you know, uh, so and, and that. But I think one needs to do more research. I think you know uh, into how actually cricket is played and, and the institutional structures. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about Balu was that when he was playing, he was a huge hero uh, to the untouchable community at the time. You know, uh, uh, when he came back from England, he, the public felicitation function. He was the person who uh, felicitated him was B R Ambedkar when he came back from England. So he was a big hero of his time. And as it happens, as Ram Guha points out in his book, Balu then is one of the three members uh, who go to see Gandhi in the Pune Pact, you know, when Gandhi was on fast. So he becomes a Congress politician and falls out with Ambedkar. So, you know, so you have had uh, sort of untouchable cricketers. I mean, and, and his popularity, I mean, his uh, prominence as a politician derived from the fact that he was a famous cricketer. So it is quite extraordinary that since then, there has been this, you know, um, uh, big uh, gap in terms of Dalit representation in cricket. And I think it's something that uh, really needs more research and, uh, you know, as to why this has happened. I don't yeah. think I have a, uh, you know, other than pointing to the, in to the very you know, the institutional biases and the exclusions around cricket and the way the game has been played at the local level. As far as your question goes... Prashant, um, should we let uh, Peter Yeah, Peter, do you want to answer the second question? <laughs> I mean, so much better coming from Peter than... Yes, than, true. Yeah. Well, just on the... Again, the Pakistan comparison is quite interesting about 
I mean, I, it's not a caste issue, but it's a class issue. Or I mean, the the game was very middle class in Pakistan, as it was in India, really, until the 70s. And then you've got this amazing explosion into the villages and into the into lower, poor urban areas. And you get a mass of players coming through, um, uh, you know, Mushtaq, Ahmed, uh, uh, dozens of them actually. I'm just, my, my mind isn't working at the moment. Who come from the poorest rural background imaginable? Um, and I was surprised the same th- thing doesn't happen in India actually, because it's TV which spreads it. Mm. It suddenly yes. spreads from mm. the uh, a middle, a very narrow middle class area. A- and it's really exciting about Pakistan cricket. You get these. I'd chronicled them. Shoaib Ahmed. I mean, it's just uh, they come from nowhere. Uh, the poorest of the poor yeah. are suddenly international test stars, and it's glorious, mm. happy. Yeah. Uh, but then obviously they're Hindu, they're, they're Muslims, not Hindus. The, um, uh, the match fixing thing is clearly still going on. There's a, two test players in Pakistan have been rumbled in the last few weeks. It's a very underreported story, um, and uh, 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 and of course in India it's going on that the. the you say so much money in the IPL, you think it might put an end to it because, you know, if, you're, if you're bid yeah. 1.6 million is dollars are paid for, you hardly need to. Um, it's still clearly a terrible problem in both India and in, and in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm surprised this current load of, this current scandal in Lahore isn't, hasn't got more legs to it. Okay, let's take a few more questions. Let's uh, let's go to the back. And uh, there's a lady in the blue in the middle. Yeah, just pass that. Oh, thank both of you have questions, is it? Okay, so we'll take both of your um, questions. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, a question for kind of both of you. So we're looking at it historically in the sense of how cricket was form, eventually formed within India initially as a mechanism of interacting with colonialism and later nationalistic, and then Pakistan, it was right away nationalistic. Looking more in the modern day, um, especially given the South Asian um, legacy of dysphoria in not only the West going either to the UK, Australia, Canada, and US, uh, Australia, but also to other British colonies. And so how has cricket as a sort of national identity revolution been a means of connecting those who are like... Uh, double migrants who are based in South Africa, Kenya, for example. My family is from, are originally Indian, but are Kenyans. So my father played for the Kenyan team, but cheers India on when he plays Pakistan. So it's, <laughs> so it plays a role. And I wanted to know, is that reflected at all in today's as it, it originally was a nationalistic revolution, but now a transnationalistic in terms of the youth nowadays in the UK? Are they cheering on Pakistan versus India? Does that become important? Or are they more concerned about British uh, British cricket and their identity politics in that. Thank you. Um, this is just kind of an opinion question and doesn't have to be um, informed by your research or anything, but a demographic that I found kind of glaringly missing in this discussion was women. I mean, not just in cricket, but in sports in general. So just wondering if you kind of foresee cricket being this kind of conduit or platform for some kind of a feminist revolution, kind of taking back, you know, that kind of power. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Can I? I want to, uh, very quick answers. The, um, 
Pakistan, there should must be a, a missed. Pakistan missed the first four World Cups because Zia Al Haq takes over and and Islamism puts an end to. And these incredible sisters called um, the Khan sisters in the 1990s, in, 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 who I think have would have a statue to them. Mm. They set up a cricket team. They put an advertisement in the in the papers, uh, and they set up. A, they got 40 replies, many from hockey players, and then they got the death threats, and uh, and the massive institutional obstruction. It was only their father owned a carpet factory, and he gave them a a yard with protection. And, the, they, and, they, and they, they were accepted by the World Women's Cricket Association. And they were, they were recognised. And it's a glorious... One, on one occasion, they had to get on uh, an aeroplane and they were banned from travelling by the powers that be in Pakistan. And that was in the 1996 World Cup, I think. Um, I've written about them extensively, because uh, I think they're so wonderful. Uh, and they all, had to, they all went on the aeroplanes uh, as, as ordinary individuals, and they changed into their cricket gear on the plane. It, it's just, it's a, they're heroines. Uh, you know, they're marvellous. Um, uh, uh, then, um, I mean, I, I think in, you know, in the rest of South Asia, it's not necessarily that kind of direct uh, sort of opposition or preventing people from playing. I think it's a more... Uh, sort of uh, uh, ignoring or completely a, a bias which does not simply recognize. And it's a shame because the Indian women's cricket team has been highly successful, far more successful than the men's team, in fact, in many occasions. Uh, but there's no, in terms of sponsorship, in terms of the media coverage. And that's why, you know, when I was talking about the fourth point that I make about cricket and middle class culture, I think one has to relate, you know, gender is a very critical part of that, you know, the cultures of sociability and, uh, and, and the sorts of... Uh, hidden exclusions, you know, uh, and just like caste, I think that's, again, one of those stories uh, that, that really demand f further research, you know, in terms of how this operates on the ground. And I think, again, it goes back to the institutional practices, the structures of, you know, grassroots cricket, and also the encouragement uh, that, that girls receive within families and so on. You know, I think there's still a great deal of bias against women's sport and women's cricket in particular, and I don't think that's specific to uh, India alone. I don't think it's like in Pakistan where you have a very direct attempt to prevent people from playing. Do you want to take the quick answer, Prashant, to the diaspora question? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. In fact, uh, to answer that question, one would need to do more ethnographic work on how people relate to cricket. I mean, the sort of diasporic community you're talking about is one. There's also the Indian diaspora, which is increasingly migrating to places like the United States and Canada. And cricket is flourishing in the United States largely because of the South Asian population there who are taking to the game. And how they relate to this uh, and, you know, how they relate to questions of national identity uh, through cricket is a very tangled question. I don't think I have an easy answer to that. I think one needs more sort of ethnographic research to see what the meanings of the sport are. Mm, Pakistan, you. it's so uniting, so much so that the Taliban closes down operations when Pakistan's playing and um, it puts on electricity supplies so everybody can get around a TV. And then they, if, if Pakistan happens to win, there's an enormous firing of bullets in the air. And, <laughs> and this is without Imran Khan being prime minister. <laughs> what would happen then? Uh, let's take some more questions from this end. Any questions at this side? Okay, there's uh, those two people, the two gentlemen there. Thank you. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or ideas about, because we've talked about India and Pakistan, but if you had any thoughts about how cricket developed in Sri Lanka as well? 
And pass it to your left, please. Uh, my question was more, why do you think it was cricket and not hockey that gained the following? It, it goes to your first proposition, I think, where there's equality on the sports field. And hockey, India and Pakistan were both good players of hockey. So I would have thought that maybe hockey would work, would have been the game, the, the sport that got the following, not cricket. Mm. I'll answer that question first, uh, the, sec- the question about hockey. Actually, again, the story of hockey is not, uh, it, it's complicated because hockey is popular in India until the 1970s uh, and in, in other parts of the subcontinent too. I think it's the, fa- you know, as the hockey team starts failing, uh, you know, and, and they don't keep up with the AstroTurf and, you know, uh, they start losing out to European teams and Australian teams and so on. That's when, uh, but even in the 70s, you know, the, the, it wasn't easy, you know, one couldn't have foretold the, uh, the demise of hockey and its falling popularity. But again, I think it relates to the way in which, uh, you know, uh, particular sports are taken up, you know, either at the institutional level, the sorts of, the way they come to be popularized through forms of mass media and so on. So it's, uh, and, and patronage and sponsorship, you know, and, and hockey, I think, has never recovered from, uh, from what happened in the 70s. But between the 30s and the 70s, hockey's popularity was quite, you know, it was played. It was played, of course, in particular areas with, you know, greater fervor, North India, for example. Um, your question, uh, the processes at work in Sri Lankan cricket are not very different. It's taken up by the Sinhalese middle class, you know, uh, educated in British institutions. And, and the, the distinctive feature of Sinhalese, uh, Sri Lankan cricket was that schools and college cricket in Sri Lanka was very strong. Um, <laughs> And one of the things I found with the 1911 tour was that it was originally going to in- include players from what was then called Ceylon. Uh, and in the end, it didn't happen. But there were at least four or five players who had come for trials from uh, Sri Lanka uh, to Bombay in the, summer of, you know, in, in, in the winter of 1910. Uh, and Sri Lankan cricket, right from the outset, you know, uh, sort of established itself at schools and colleges. Uh, but it took them a long time to get test status, as it were, because they were not as strong as India and Pakistan. This is a good moment, if I can insert a question to that. What what does cricket do to the West Pakistan, East Pakistan story and and the the emergence of Bangladesh? Yeah, um, it's fascinating. By the way, uh, Sri Lanka needs a a book on it. Sri Lankan cricket, because of the the, the war, the cricket and civil war Mm. uh, is a very interesting subject. Somebody must, and of course how the Tamil... (laughs) And the, and the, the Sinhalese—it's—it's it's never been. And it's, I'm, it's, it's a, I, I, I've got it on my list, right? Actually, mm. I won't—I never get round to it. So if somebody else wants, or PhD would be a glorious subject. Um, anyway, going back to B- Bangladesh, it's so um, interesting. East Pakistan, as it was called, um, was uh, presi- pr- pr- produced. Anybody want to guess how many? Test players it produced between 1942 when Pakistan became a test country and 1971 when Bangladesh. Anybody, any guesses? Three. Zero. Zero. Well, they had one uh, poster boy <laughs> produced at the very, very end. He wasn't any. He, uh, so you, he didn't produce any. That, that in itself tells you uh, an enormous uh, story. Um, uh, and I've, I was very interested in the. Um, ha, ha, towards the end, towards the end of the, uh, or rather the 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 before towards the 1971 catastrophe, um, you get uh, increasing attempts by Pakistan to build up cricket. Hence the one player. Um, 
and that bizarrely, in one of, actually, one of the fascinating, when I, was research, I was so interested in 1969 when you've already got basically it's out of control. Mm-hmm. The MCC cricket team is sent to Dhaka. Now, I, um, what, uh, where it's basically being sent into a war zone by then. I went to the Foreign Office, I went to the National Archive in Kew, because there must have been, there was, there was huge. <coughs> and f- bizarrely, and I, would, I, 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 I think something fishy here, they're not there, they, there's nothing. The, the record's not available. My view is that, if you remember, um, that conflict was the British and the Americans backed uh, Pakistan. And uh, it was seen, Ayub Khan was seen as a key who we had appalled, we'd installed, MI6 and the CIA had installed him, uh, shockingly in my view, I really hate it, when, I, in, I, 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 when they got rid of uh, the civil authority and installed military rule by, by, by the West in 1956 7 uh, Ayub Khan was a key Western ally against the, top, the pesky Russians. And, of course, the Indians were allied to these ghastly Russians. And, um, uh, and uh, the, the, the record... I think they were sent... We, were, we sent our cricketers to... Britain did, England did, to a uh, war zone in order to support the... Because uh, uh, they were quite likely to get killed. I mean, it, to, to support... I, prop up Ayub Khan... Uh, and uh, they didn't want to go, and they were sort of forced into it by the Foreign Office. Uh, it's a very interesting moment. Um, and anyway, it didn't succeed. So and in fact, they were, the moment they got to Dhaka, they were, they were out of control. They, the, Dhaka was run by activist groups. You're immediately out of... They, the, the, the moment they got off the aeroplane, they were under the control of the local resistance. Well, who treated them beautifully, with lovely manners and... But they just they said to them, so long as you play cricket, it'll be fine. If you were, if you're not going to be able to leave, I mean, there was no. They, they, they were out of the control of the Pakistan state, mm. and it was bizarre actually that this should have been done. Another subject: if somebody could find the archives in queue relating to the, must have been very heavy diplomatic I, traffic between the MCC and the British Embassy and the mm. FCO. It's not there in queue, and it's and a lot of stuff. They, as Ian Cobain's book recently, of the history of thieves shows, is that they basically uh, the uh, British state has destroyed lots of uh, interesting stuff, and I think they've destroyed that stuff because it was so. Um, <laughs> that's I've got lots lots to say about that. But it's it's that you get you get the in 1970 they were still playing the Ayub Khan Trophy in Bangladesh. I mean it. It was quite eye-opening, I thought. That was mm. quite... <laughs> but the Bangladeshi teams wouldn't play it. They, yeah. they, they, uh, they, you, get, you get it. it was, I followed that quite carefully. Mm, great. Mm. Yeah, OK. Uh, thanks. Um, could you speak to why cricket takes up so much of the oxygen in South Asia in terms of sport in a way that it doesn't in other countries, like, for example, South Africa, which also had... You know, it's a very strong cricketing nation, but it also has a lot of space for other sport. Why is it that cricket has taken so much, not just of the television space, but the political space and the space in history of sport in South Asia in particular, where it doesn't really in the West Indies in the same way or South Africa and places like that? 
Uh, let's take another question. There's a gentleman at the back on the aisle. Hi. I just wanted to ask, uh, how do you see cricket evolving in Afghanistan uh, compared to drawing similarities in Pakistan, if there's any thoughts on that? Peter, you can take that one, and you can take the first one. Um, I think uh, my sense is it it just the prominence of cricket uh, seems quite stark now because it seems to put a lot of these other sports out of business. Though in recent years we've seen a revival on television of some of the other sports, you know, popular sports, indigenous Indian sports. It's a story where until the 1960s it's not so apparent that cricket will do this. Though through, you know, from the 1930s onwards it's very clear that cricket is getting ahead of all these other sports. I think many things go into it. The fact that uh, cricket institutionally embeds itself much more securely uh, in, in, you know, uh, in, in urban areas, and that's where a lot of the sporting resources tend to be. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the heroes who emerge out of the sport, you know, captivate, uh, you know, they acquire a sort of pan-India identities. Um, the fact that other sports uh, are not reported on so much by uh, newspapers. And it's, it's a very curious one. I mean, the, the, these Indian wrestlers I'm talking about uh, in, in my book, they hardly get any mention, whereas the cricket tour has fallen. This is as early as 1911. So I think there was a sort of a, you know, in terms of the press coverage, and, 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 and that's why I said that cricket from a very early uh, point in time gets this sort of traction. But I think the fundamental uh, uh, sort of point there, I think what's at work is that right from the beginning, cricket in a colonized society uh, acquires a certain sort of political charisma, largely because of the sorts of meanings that it comes to acquire in relation. It's a game that the colonizers play and, and, you know, by beating them at it or by taking them on at it, it acquires this sort of, you know, the, the game becomes intensely politicized right from the start. And it gets, comes to be invested with these sorts of political meanings. So I think any explanation of cricket's dominance has to be a political one because right from the beginning it acquires this sort of political uh, cachet which other sports don't have. It's got to do with the prestige that it has as an imperial game. It's got to do with the fact that as it institutionally embeds itself and Indians start doing better at it, it acquires this sort of uh, charisma, as I said. So I think... That doesn't quite answer the question, though, which is why not in South Africa and Australia... And given they are also um, dominions... But it is popular. Uh, and, yeah, it's popular, but you, you get rubbed. And these answers are very simple. Try playing rugby in, uh, yeah. in Pakistan. Exactly. No, that's I mean, exactly what I was going to say. Or India. It's just too hard. You, you, you knees. But you get other no, sorts uh, of sports. I don't know. I, can I, as an anthropologist, offer an explanation? <laughs> I think there is... You've talked about muscular Islam. And I think there's some, an excellent account of rugby and muscular Christianity and the Boy Scouts movement and, and that spreading to South Africa like that. For me, the question's always been, why is rugby not the game all over the empire? Why is it only in the white colonies that rugby is? It's uh, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand have the strong teams. And here, this idea of contact sport is important. And, and the fact that in South Asia, to have that much contact sport in a multi-caste, multi-religious team, but, you know, just but even is, between... But the exception here is resting, because one of the things, and this is where yeah. the re- reporting uh, is, is quite important, the fact is that newspapers don't report it, but wrestling in North India is the most popular sport, and in fact, it often transcends... In, in the wrestling pit, you can often have caste boundaries that are set right. aside. You could have... I mean, I've had reports where Rajput wrestlers would fight with Muslim wrestlers and so on. And, and one of the reports says that this is the one arena in which people will, are, 
you know, willing to put aside their identity in the wrestling pit. Now, this is not something that gets reported, but it was actually a far more popular sport in right. some ways. Uh, so, I, so, you know, so I think the way, uh, so that's where the, the, the reporting of these things and the way in which, you know, the new instruments of mass culture, like the media, report the game and, you know, what they choose to focus on. Most of these newspapers, you know, in, in the urban areas hardly ever spoke about wrestling. So I think... Do you think... And did, that is a contact Did Indian too. wrestlers wrestle with English wrestlers yes. in yes. India? Yes. Oh, okay. 1892. First, uh, this thing that I've come across. Right. That is interesting. Ma? And Kabaddi, yeah. yeah. Which is less contact than, more contact than cricket, but less contact than wrestling. Yes, of course, yeah. Uh, very brief, briefly on Afghanistan. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, it started, got going really with the, when the, when the Afghans went back after the war, because they learnt it in Pakistan. And it's sort of making progress. Uh, I've, I've t and again, the Taliban appear to take a positive-ish view. Uh, uh, the, the, Pakistan, the Afghan Taliban do appear to tolerate it, which is surprising. They insist on you wearing a shalwar kameez when you play. Because it's more decent, but that's which hinders the leg glance. Um, Even with pads on it. Oh, maybe that may pads yeah, make so it. Yeah, so the pads just—they're uh, not that different from flannels if you think about it. By the way, the Parsis came. They came in 1886. Were dressed a bit like in salwar kameez, and they, you know, sort of yes, they, they, they had, they had a lot of comment about that in the press. Women playing lawn tennis and long gowns. I mean, it's. Uh, Clearly possible. Okay, let's uh, let's take this lady here in the middle, and then uh, can you see in the blue? All the ladies are in blue this evening. So the lady in the blue. Yeah. Um, even today, uh, cricket is really politically driven. Like Sharad Pawar, um, Amit Shah, Jaitley, and even Modi held positions in cricket boards at some point. Why do you think it's such an attractive ground for politicians? Thank you. And we'll take the gentleman there at the back. Yeah. Uh, the one place we haven't seemed to mention so far is the UAE, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and it's kind of a growing power in cricket now. And I'm wondering whether you think the move of the ICC headquarters from London uh, to Dubai is a reflection of India's uh, growing influence in cricket, but whether also because of the large South Asian diaspora who live in the UAE, uh, particularly Pakistanis and Indians, uh, whether possibly in the future the UAE cricket team could be uh, a real dominant force in the game? The answer is no. <laughs> because? I, uh, there's no sign of that at all. The... Um, UAE is a very bad effect, influence on cricket. It's, it's, the, it's the most corrupt. Dubai is possibly the most corrupt place in the whole world. And um, barring, post, barring conceivably Buenos Aires. <laughs> and uh, I, it's had a malign effect on the game. Try playing a test match. You've been there. Nobody goes and watches. Perhaps on, perhaps on Friday afternoon. And um, it's, it's terribly sad that the Pakistan team has to play that. I'm sure that the Indian cricket board, which is the most, has a disastrous effect on world cricket at the moment, is responsible for taking that headquarters out to, to buy. 
And actually, they should be honest about it and have it in Delhi or Bombay. I think it has to do with tax things, probably. Yeah, they all, and also money laundering. There's an enormous, astronomic amounts of money laundering. Drugs money goes backwards and forwards. Which might link it to the first question. Um, and politics and cricket is, um, yeah, is, it has become part of the patronage system in Pakistan of all Pakistan leaders, Nawaz Sharif, yeah, there's been a convention that the president of the P of uh, the Pakistan Cricket Board has uh, is actually uh, also the chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board is also uh, the the, the the prime minister, but Nawaz Sharif has broken that because he's um, he, he he wanted to be sorry he's the, he wanted to be he he, he broke that rule because he wanted to run cricket as well as everything else, um, and it is. There's two points of view. One is obviously terribly bad because it leads to uh, patronage and the wrong people. But on the other hand, it, it's a recognition of the reality. But also I think it has to do with the fact that right from the beginning, it, was, you know, it had this cachet, you know, just sort of the, the fact that you could, it's a place, you could have sport which allows you to do business with the ruling elite. That was in the colonial period. And subsequently, it has always been controlled by politicians. I mean, even in the early 1900s, right from the beginning, you, initially it was the princess. Uh, and, and the emerging capitalists in Bombay. In fact, the 1911 tour is organized by the Tatas and, and the princely families working together with other business people. Uh, so that has always been the case. I think for politicians now, it's also the fact that since the 80s, cricket has become a huge source of revenue generation. I mean, there's huge money in the game. I mean, because of the TV rights and, and, and the following it has and the corporate sponsorship and so on. So that also attracts, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, 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 money at stake, and and also the fact that it still has, you know, sort of in terms of social status, and you know, the fact that you can hop up with cricketers and celebrities and so on, that brings you know a lot of people like that. So I think all of that plays into it. Thank you. Yeah. Can we get this? Do you want to move your chair this way? It might be a bit... Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, you've been suffering. Yes, I see what you mean, yeah. Hello, hello. Thank, thanks for the talk so far. It's been fascinating. Um, can I ask a question about pay? Um, so the English history of cricket has been pretty divided um, by sort of the professionals and amateurs' distinction throughout its history, um, even up to the 60s when they were coming out of different gates at the Oval. Um, but were there sort of similar distinctions in India and Pakistan over pay um, up until sort of 1947 and more recently than that? Um, not really. I mean, uh, you have to remember until the 20s and 30s, there was no gate money in India. People could walk, come and watch cricket matches. You don't have enclosed sort of fee-paying things. That only has starts from the 1930s onwards. Um, and you do get a hierarchy with some players who get, you know, sort of sponsorship money and so on. But the pay is fairly low and there isn't this sort of, in terms of uh, remuneration, there isn't that sort of difference between professionals and amateurs. That distinction doesn't exist. Uh, and right into the, till the 60s, players often had to, more, I mean, if you look at Richard Cashman's fascinating study, uh, he shows how most players had to have, even test cricketers, had to have a proper day job. Uh, and, and cricket was played, you didn't play it full, you know, you played it, but you had a full-time job that you went to. Uh, it's only that starts changing only uh, after the, you know, in the late 19, uh, sort of mid-1990s. Uh, and the last 20 years, of course, the big money has changed it completely. In, in, in Pakistan, it's, as you, uh, you know, there wasn't any paid until about, uh, to, to, until about 19, uh, 
70. And then my hero, Kardar, became chairman of the cricket board on the uh, point, uh, on Bhutto, Bhutto. And he, he, he hooked them into corporate structures. So that you, all these AQ Khan Research Laboratories Limited has a first-class cricket team, um, which is in Pakistan, has done that, water and power. In, and, and so you then get, you get hooked into the... Um, you get you get these non-jobs. You get the banks and so on. Yeah, the, and all the yeah, all the banks and the railways, um, which uh, is controversial. But and it gives them a security. But what happened in Pakistan? I'm sure something similar happened. You then got the effect of professional of, of PACA, PACA, the PACA revolution, mm. and TV. It suddenly recognised that players actually had a value. Yeah. And this is what poor old Kadar, who'd been brought up on the Oxbridge tradition that you did it for love of country, um, he, he, that was the end of him. He couldn't cope at all. And there was a revolution of the players, and suddenly they started to bid up and get Packer commercial. had less of an impact on India, interestingly enough. Indian players didn't really play in it. Yeah, and then, and then, and, but now it's, it's, you know, it's what, you're, what you're worth. You know, ben Stokes, 1.2.1 million. 1.6 million. Yeah. Even now, the Pakistan players get far less money than the Indian ones. Mm. So it's a sad thing. Yeah, over there, please. And then one in the middle, yeah. Uh, if you look at the economic progress of India and indeed its strategy, it mirrors that of a test innings. It's very sort of deliberately patient, um, especially when compared with the likes of China. Um, to what extent do you think that the rise of 2020 in the IPL might cause the lower classes in India to abandon this patience um, because of the sort of instant gratification of the game and, and especially the sort of riches on display, um, maybe not a revolution, but sort of restlessness about their own economic situation? Right. Yeah, um, the revolution seems to be that it's massively divided possibly more now than it's ever been. Um, I mean, from sort of my point of view, I'm, I'm more of a test cricket fan, so I'm going to keep my, my uh, question instead of going into all of that. I mean, with 2020 and IPL, what, what's the future of the test game? Gosh, you sound like Kevin Peterson suddenly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, let me answer that first question. I think it's hard to draw, you know, sort of straightforward parallels. But it is true that, you know, IPL, it would be hard to envisage the IPL uh, in the pre-1991 India. I mean, you know, it's, uh, so clearly a lot of the money that's come into the game and change transformations in the Indian economy and so on, all of that feeds into the sort of spectacle that it is. And in fact, those who uh, sort of uh, champion it say that this is India's statement. I mean, we don't win any, at anything. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we've managed to organize what they see as one world-class tournament where the whole world follows what goes on, or the cricket-playing world follows it, is clearly seen as an you know, India's arrival on the stage, and India exerting its cricketing power and so on. But whether it will lead the, you know, uh, lower classes to feel dissatisfied, I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the fact is that I think it has actually spurred, you know, because of the money that's available and the fact that TV is taking cricket into the smallest towns and villages now, I think it is expanding the player base enormously and also the following for the game. I don't know whether that, you know, whether watching the IPL they feel, you know, that their own circumstances are bad or I doubt it, uh, that it works quite that way. The, um, the key thing to understand is that India now runs world cricket. And that changed, and it's because it's so got it makes makes so much more money than anybody else. It can do what it likes, and it's creating a crisis. For for a long time, the 
kind of the rest of cricket managed to sort of harness the Indian cricket board. But just the, the latest negotiation on the future structure of test matches and so on is absolutely yeah. crucial. And I, in my view is that India will destroy test cricket in the next decade, and it will be India which does it, nobody mm. else. I mean, and just the, its refusal to pay uh, to play test match cricket against Pakistan at the moment, is, uh, which is which comes from Modi, uh, mm. that is is very very bad indeed and very divisive. But it predates Modi too in some ways that cricketing relationship, though. I mean, India. Pakistan, it does, yeah. but at the current and at various different times, different countries have been at fault. But currently. Yeah. It's India which explicitly is at fault. Pakistan would love to play test matches and, and resume that mm. thing, which hasn't happened since yeah. 2009. Yeah. Well, actually, I have a slightly different take on it. I mean, I don't want to hold a brief for the Indian board. Uh, but the fact is that I think there's a two-tier system emerging in, in world cricket. I mean, there's India, Australia, and, uh, and England who are taking the big decisions. And the rest of, you know, and it's a bit like 1909 when you had the Imperial Conference and you had yeah. then it was Australia, South Africa, and, and, and uh, England. And I think now it's, I mean, it's true that the money part, most of the money comes from India, but I think it's those three that sit at the top table. We have a, more of a two-tier system. That's, what, that's how I see it. Yes, I... As it's been explained to me by well-informed insiders, this is purely an attempt. India makes the decision. Yeah, that's true. I, I uh, and this is simply an attempt by England and Australia to contain it. Contain it. It's, it India runs world cricket. Yeah. No, no I, I wouldn't yeah, dispute that. Yeah. No. I think I can sense a revolutionary cause emerging here. Can't you? I mean, most people in this audience and many, many others would fight for the cause of test cricket, right? I mean, this is, if this is, if, sorry, this is not meant to be as serious as it sounded. This is a, this is a revolutionary moment. We cannot let test cricket die uh, over our dead bodies, in which case, if we can pinpoint, if you're right, Peter, and it is the Indian cricket board that's destroying test cricket, this is something that we can mobilize protest about. If it's dying, I think, more in India than it is elsewhere. I mean, England and Australia, you still have test matches that are led by packed crowds. It's in India that you, you, know, you find... No, but what, it's, what the key... Th I have, I'm not an absolute master of detail here, but the point is, mm -hmm. is do you play test match cricket at all? And India is, moving, is, pu is pushing away. At the moment, as, in order to get the cash which cricket generates from TV... Uh, you have, you have to meet a series of obligations. Uh, and that's why test mat these five-day tests are played. Which India won comprehensively against England recently. You do, yes. You were very matches, good, you yeah. were. Yes, it was a very dark uh, winter, as I, as I was concerned. Um, <laughs> I, but thank you for reminding me of that. Anytime. But, yeah, yes. um, <laughs> but what I was trying to get across is that uh, the, 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 the negotiations, the next set of negotiations probably will bring an end to test match cricket, and that's, that's what India... Yeah, yeah. That's worrying. Okay, let's take one last question. Are there any... But, okay, one there and one here, and then we'll stop. Let's... Oh, okay. If you can make it quick. Yeah, we have time. It's okay. Yeah, let's uh, take them all. Just a comment again about test cricket. It's a bit paradoxical that this last winter, India has played 13 test matches, the most ever. So how do we reconcile again the notion yeah, that yeah. India is destroying test cricket. And okay. on the other hand, the cricket board in India has actually played more test matches than one-day matches this winter. Okay. And the person right in front of him. There. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on Dr. Kadami's point about um, 
uh, test cricket um, being less popular in, in India amongst the masses now compared to 2020 cricket, but still popular in England and Australia. And is there maybe an argument to be said that test cricket perhaps reflects a notion of um, a time in England, um, perhaps of a, of a bygone era, mm. whereas 2020 cricket is a modern 21st yeah. century game for, you know, the, for a country like India, which is growing, is prosperous, uh, is energetic. Perhaps test cricket, in a way, represents something of a, of a, a, a bygone era, perhaps like Bake Off does, for example, in, yeah. in, some, in some respect. Thank you. And the last question here. What, there are more questions there? No. Okay. Uh, to that point? Uh, oh, God. No. I, don't. We have five minutes. We have five minutes. Okay. So we'll take those. We'll take, if you can keep your questions really brief, the last two people can get questions after, in, after this. Okay. Yeah. Very oh, briefly. Sorry, thank yeah. you. Uh, why is it? Is there a politics behind why the game, being what it is in both countries, is not the national game of either country? Sense. Yes. yes, it's like English is not our national language, and, no. and, and yes, most Indians are sort of more comfortable now in sort of you know when they meet each other in navigating it through English. No, I, I, I think that it doesn't have you know I mean I think the, the answer is that the game which which is supposed to be our national game wasn't really taken up and it's not something that you know we is known outside you know India I think cricket the fact that it's it's an international game. And, and the fact that, or international to an extent, and, and the fact that we've done well at it, I think that has added to its, you know, appeal. Sorry, what is India's national game? It's hockey. It is hockey. And in Pakistan? And Pakistan is also hockey. hockey. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Um, uh, Peter, oh, Prashant, did you want to answer? Yeah. Yeah, I think the point about test match is true. That's why I'm a bit more skeptical about India's, uh, you know, the, the saying that India will finish off test cricket. I think the way it's going to go is that the revenues from the shorter forms will subsidize uh, uh, the, the longer format of the game because of the history and the fact that it has this cachet and so on. I mean, even Indian test cricket, even Indian cricketers won't succeed at the long form of the game. They don't want to stop playing test cricket. Uh, the other thing I think is the point about England and, and you know, the fact that it reminds them of a pupil. I find the argument persuasive, except that there's a certain essentializing element there, which I'm slightly mm. uncomfortable with. But it is true that cricket, you know, test cricket does have this, you know, the, the sense of that history and so on. Is, is much stronger here, clearly. I mean, if you go to Lords on the opening day of a test match and you see the packed house and so on, and it's clearly, you know, that sense of a long tradition of watching it in that particular way and so on. Um, so I think I find it, you know, but I won't go you know, so far as to say that, in, you know, India is energetic and that's why it's taken to 2020, whereas English, you know, the, the British have become full of, you know, there's the a lassitude in the air and so on. You know, that, I won't sort of go that far. Yeah, okay. Uh, you had a question? Uh, you had a question, didn't you? Yeah. So uh, let's, and then, okay, if you, if you can be really, really brief, and then we'll let Peter uh, take these questions. Yeah, I was going to say the big thing about cricket in England is radio. Yes. And is, is radio important? Thank you. Thank you for talking about radio. Let's take that at the back quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. And let's uh, take one last one here. That is really the final one. 
Thanks very much. This is a question for Peter. I'd just very quickly like to say um, congratulations on Wounded Tiger, brilliant book. Um, what I particularly found interesting was your perception that Pakistan cricket has this unique ability to select from the lower socioeconomic strata. And particularly currently in English um, cricket, um, I'm speaking from personal experience where I was privileged enough to arrive in this country when state school cricket was in its golden era. But there is in this country a situation now where state schools less and less are producing elite cricketers and it's pretty much becoming confined, almost similar to the Indian system where it's the upper strata. But what system is in place in an overtly chaotic system that is enabling mm. the... Uh, Street boys, people, you know, Wesley Macrams, yeah. for instance, who are becoming world beaters. Yeah. It's We're out of time, so they have to go. So let's... Very quickly, yeah, I mean... Thank you. I think, Sorry. I think the answer, it may be tape ball, you know. Tape ball in Pakistan is massive. Uh, it probably is? is in India as well. And likewise, there is, the, the, the system is falling out a bit. You know, the middle classes take over. But let's see. Uh, let, oh, let's end with a general point. Let's. There are, there's no reason why we can't have 2020 coexisting with Test match cricket. Yeah. yeah. And it makes sense. The point about radio. I think radio is less popular in India now than it used to be in the 70s. It's uh, TV largely. And as for Test cricket, I think day night Test cricket might actually pack up. You know, in the 70s they had day night Test matches, and it was quite. You know, it might work. I'm not so against it. Yeah, I think he's wrong. He's, he's wrong, this boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the revolutionary future, though. Yeah. So thank you both very much. We're out of time. Thank you for being